Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the NYRB classics. Today we're discussing J.R. Ackerley's My Father and Myself, first published in 1968 and republished by the New York Review Book Classics in 1999. And we are lucky to be joined by writer and critic Vivian Gornick, whose most recent book is Taking a Long Look, Essays on Culture, Literature, and Feminism in Our Time. Her memoir, Fierce Attachments, explored her relationship with her mother and in 2019 was selected by the New York Times as the number one best memoir of the previous 50 years. Welcome, Vivian. <laughs> Welcome, Vivian. And congratulations. So would you like to deliver your overarching opinion on my father and myself? Uh, yeah, I think that would be best. So then whoever's listening also gets to understand what the book is about. So I started to tell you... Um, I wrote about this book in my own book called The Situation of the Story. That was a book about the art of personal narrative. And I used Ackerley as one of many to illustrate what I'm calling the situation, which is the circumstance, the plot, you know, the context of whatever is being written about, and the story being the emotional wisdom that the writer has come mm-hmm. to give right Mm -hmm. so now my father and myself was found on Ackerley's desk after his death he had been writing it for 30 years so once when I was teaching it I asked the class why do you think it took 30 years for him to write this book when it could have taken three years three years you know why 30 years and the reason was he didn't have clear the emotional wisdom. He didn't have the story. He had the circumstance, which was the story of his family life. It was, as we all know, if you read it, it's an uncovering of family life. And the father, who seemed an amiable, just ordinary, sensual, unthinking, uh, decent uh, house provider, turned out to have been living a double life, Mm -hmm. a life in which there was a mistress and three children on the other side Mm -hmm. of town. And, and, you know, you can imagine how shocked he he was. And then he went searching for the origins of this father. And, yeah, right? That's what he does. He goes searching. He says, who was this man? Who was this man? And why did I never know him? And why did he never know me? And what was it all about? And then he, he keeps working at it. And you can feel him working at it. The greatness <laughs> of the book is the way you feel the situation being worked in the sentences. The sentences are both clear and ever-deepening. And that is the genius of the book. Every great book is lower, even every yeah. good book. Something of that in it. That feeling that the sentences are deepening as the narrative proceeds. You can, in a really good book, you can feel the writer understanding things as he or she goes along. Mm-hmm. And the reader has that experience, and it's really great. So, Ackerley, Ackerley, he, uh, and by the way, we also know Ackerley was. He grew up literary, 
and homosexual. And right, and the homosexual part in his years was really a problem and something to be hidden, which he did do. He hid, he hid, and he exploits that in this sense. As he tries to inspect who his father was, he comes to the conclusion, as you all know, that his father was actually a male whore in his youth, right? That the father was sleeping with a wealthy older man and he got a stake from that. So, you know, actually shocked out of his head over this. And all of this is being fed into why did I never know him? Mm -hmm. Well, why? Why did he never know me? Mm -hmm. Why did I never know myself? And then it's, he didn't want to know me. I didn't want to know him. I didn't want to know myself. Now, that's one of the greatest themes in literature, right? I mean, uh, where the narrator is, is literally telling you, I never wanted to know who I was. And all this subterfuge is life, mm -hmm. is life itself, is how we proceed with all this attempt to bury the things that we're most afraid about ourselves. And I find all that in this book, in my father and myself. I'm going to really read differently the way you describe thinking about like the sentences and the subject and the story. Good. That's about it. I have nothing more to say. Now you guys take it. <laughs> how do you think he, I mean, besides the passage of 30 years, how did Ackerley arrive at that emotional wisdom? Oh, you know, I think life really forced it on him. He, I think by his own reckoning, you could say, he was not a brave man. He was not, he was not a brave man. He knew it himself, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you could tell that, right? Yeah. And therefore, you feel, um, it's, it's, an, it, it's like a psychoanalysis right in front of you, where, where the, the patient is slowly not being forced, but is slowly in a place where elucidation is um, inescapable. Mm -hmm. You can't get away from it. Yeah. And I don't know if you know his other books, My Dog Tulip. My, oh, My Dog Tulip is the story of Ackerley and a, uh, a dog that he uh, had and adores, right? It's one mm -hmm. of the strangest dog books ever written. It's <laughs> 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 as though the dog was human, and, uh, and it's weird. And by the end of it, you realize what the dog has meant to him. He himself was consigned to cruising. You know, he, he, he never was openly gay. So it was all a hidden life. And he, he had a taste for rough trade. Mm -hmm. And was always involved with some working class lout or other. <laughs> um, it was a mess. I mean, his, his, life was, his life was just a mess. And the dog saved him from a lot of that. The dog saved him from cruising. But you can feel how frightened he is, how scared he is mm -hmm. of making any move. And he worked for 24 years at, at the listener the newsletter, I think, of the BBC, right? Wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Their magazine, yeah. Yeah. 
And I believe nobody knew anything about his life. Nobody certainly knew he was gay. So he kept everything secret. In my father and myself, you can feel uh, that you know, a, bo a kind of boldness is growing, a kind of or a willingness to explore, to discover uh, more than he has before. Sure. And if, and if you know those other books, you really feel it strongly. I'm going to skip ahead because you mentioned like the sort of psychoanalysis that um, Ackerley does in this book. One of the things we kind of noticed with the book was it felt almost like a detective story. Mm -hmm. And this might be because that we've been watching a lot of the Poirot show. <laughs> <laughs> But like, you know, when he gathers everyone around to describe the psychology of everyone and the actions everyone took and the mystery behind it all, it, it, for some reason, the, it just very much sounded to me that way. And I wanted to read a little bit about one thing that made it sound like that to me. He's talking about sort of his father's uh, past. Whatever the truth of the matter, the finding at the hermitage handsome young Mr. Ackerley, Louise engaged herself to him. It was quickly done. They announced their engagement before the turn of the year and expressed their desire to leave. The Count was said by everyone who knew him to be an extremely jealous man. He was deeply upset and I expect behaved badly. However, whether he was upset at losing Luis or at losing my father, the reader must decide for himself. I can provide no details of the sequence of events, but I provide a letter from which the emotional atmosphere at least may be gauged. It is from Mademoiselle de Gallatin to Stockley in Grand Canary. It is undated, but internal evidence shows that it was written after the new year. Dashed off, one can see once the Count derived his punctuation, in an overwrought state of mind. It is not easy to decipher, but I give it as something of an occasional guess, in full. And then he reads the letter, and then I like his little statement at the end of it. This letter does not read to me like the indignation of a devoted mother, who has prospective daughter-in-law flinched away. The loss the Count suffered was not the loss of the bride. And again, he goes on. And it's a very sort of evidence-based book for a lot of right. it, where he's bringing up these letters or these poems. And he's like, let me look at the way. I can't exactly tell you what I think it is, but let, let me try to psychoanalyze it. And then he goes in and psychoanalyzes himself as well. And I found that a very interesting way to right. approach it in a yeah, memoir. Yes, I couldn't agree more. It does all feel exactly like that. And, and he is making that a metaphor. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what life is. I mean, that that slow that uh, that is very psychoanalytic in its uh, in its atmosphere. I mean, a slow discovery of this, sure. that, and the other, and accompanied actually here with the the hesitation of one who's not sure that discovering all this will make any difference. Mm -hmm. right. That's you know? that's really true. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting elements of it, and how he, he, feeling that he holds the whole thing together. You would think that the writing would, you know, burst apart at that point, but it but it never does. <laughs> in a student's in a student's hands, it would. <laughs> <laughs> Are you people MFA students? No, no, we're not just passionate, not passionate readers. Yeah, no. No, I, I graduated with a statistics degree, oh, Kasi, yes. with a I international studied international relations. International relations. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. And now you're you're in. Uh, this is what you're involved in mostly. Um, these podcasts. Uh, this is like a side project that oh. we're working on. Uh -huh. But yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I mainly like work at a lab, Kasi. 
works as a writer and oh. yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, where were we? <laughs> so I was intrigued by the sequence of events. He breaks with his own personal realization of the of what his father called his secret orchard and he withholds that from the reader till almost the end Um, and he explains in his foreword that he did this for kind of structural purposes to create a more engaging book overall but it was an it was an interesting choice to me and I was wondering if you thought that that was effective oh yes definitely I do Mm -hmm. yeah no I thought it was exactly the right thing to do because that that is where where it's going and and that that is that justifies Again, it's metaphoric. He makes it metaphoric. It justifies uh, the secret, the secret, which in the end only explains so much and no more. You're never inside the father. You know, you never know what's going on inside him or what it's all about. And if I remember correctly, the half sister has written a book too. Yeah. Right? He has a half. And that one was called the Secret Orchard. Yeah. Did you read that? I've never seen that. No. I only learned about it yesterday when we were doing oh. some pre-episode research. I was like, darn, I wish I would have read that yeah, book. Yeah, <laughs> I, I always kept meaning to read it, and I, I did. Uh, but it, you see, he, it's not as if he could make any connection with the mistress or the, half, or the half-sisters. He, he, he didn't. It was, mm. it was, it was simply uh, to, nail the, to nail the father that this is all written and to understand himself or not to no, not to understand himself to explain why he could never understand himself uh, i think that that's really ultimately not necessarily the aim but the accomplishment of of the book i don't remember where uh where you discover that he was a kind of protege of em forster um, mm-hmm. you no know, you know that right that mm-hmm. uh, in those years, I guess it's the 30s and 40s. Yeah, it's the 40s probably. Yeah, around the Second World War. There's a whole bunch of them who, who gather in Hammersmith, a section of uh, London, and they, they, they have these uh, parties. And it's all grown men come from good families and it's all secret, secret, secret. And, <laughs> and Forster sometimes appears there and you feel of the double secrecy of his life, even you know, you, you can just feel the culture changing in the in the presence in the grouping of all these men who who represent varying states. You know, it was illegal. You went to jail if you were homosexual. Did you ever see the movie Victim? Take take a look at that with Dirk Bogart. It's a great movie, and it tells you exactly what uh, homosexuality was like in the time of Ackerley. Mm. Dangerous. That's a movie I've been meaning to see. Oh, I've heard it's very oh, good. It's a great movie. Yeah. It tells you everything. You'll, you'll really understand Ackerley's, uh, the atmosphere in which all this was happening. Mm-hmm. How, how secretive and how frightening it was. I mean, I've seen that movie a number of times. And I always think of him when, when I see it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's <laughs> no, I do. I always think of him. It's one of the great books for me, and I'm glad it is for you too. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, it's it's really an accomplishment. Uh, I'm rambling now. Go on. Oh no, you're that's good. Okay. No. We love to um, hear it. We were a bit intrigued about the use of detail. There's some things he goes into very deep detail on. And the other ones that he kind of leaves as secondary or mundane are some of the more dramatic or traumatic ones. 
Like he passes over um, the neglect, the failed abortions. There's a very specific part in the book in World War I where his brother is stuck behind enemy lines and we know the brother's going to die. And that goes on for a while and that's not where the brother dies. And when the brother dies, it's very much just like, oh, a missile decapitated him and that's yeah. it. Is there any reason you can think why he decided to go in very detail of specific events while other ones that might have been picked over more in another literary hands might have been the more dramatically um, written about ones? Oh, gee, no. You got me there. <laughs> no, I have to <laughs> That's okay. That's why we're asking. We were also kind of yeah. like trying to think about it ourselves. No, no. It's often the case that you, you puzzle over why a writer chose this and not that. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't readily see uh, what they're saying. But I guess that's one of those moments. No, it didn't occur to me. Uh, but I do remember when the brother does die, how casual it, the reference suddenly yeah. is. It's shocking. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, he, he, did, he did. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> uh, I do remember that. I don't remember the detailed description before. But yeah, mm -hmm. it was shocking. Yeah. Actually, there's a distance between him and everybody in the family. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's unmistakable. He wrote a book about his sister, yeah, also towards the end. She was a piece of work. I mean, she she, well, <laughs> she, she was horrifying in many ways. And she, he couldn't, she was falling apart all the time. She just absolutely could not become a grown-up person who could take care of herself. And he just couldn't walk away from her. So he lived with her until she died. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I think he died first. But but he lived with her. And, and that's what that book is about. And at the same time that he lived with her, you can feel the coldness between mm. them. I mean, it's all duty, duty, duty. And I understand mm -hmm. that one completely. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I am a daughter of duty. And... Um, I know what it feels like, and it feels like to, to you know, the moral part of your your moral imagination will not let you free, at the same time that your emotional imagination wants nothing but out, and she, she and he had that relationship. There's something of that in every book he wrote, in all of mm. his books, there is a strange distance between Ackerley and the people around him and what he's writing about. And that's, again, what makes him such a superior uh, writer. Because, you know, the one thing that you feel immediately in anything you read is, is this writer writing from the right distance? Is it not too far, not too close? Is it myopic or is it, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, in other words, um, People dislike memoirs because they're myopic. You know, mm. it's all me, me, me in the wrong way. Uh, it's mm. not me in context. It's not me in the world. It's, it's not me and the world. But, and he's sort of like that. But he is, it's remarkable for how he handles it, how he manages it, that you, you forgive him the coldness. You feel him protecting himself and, and rightly so. But he's not protecting himself at your expense, you, the mm -hmm. 
Some of the most exciting parts of the book to me are his war experiences and the the chapter on his search for the ideal friend, uh, which is his term for uh, the ideal lover (laughs) partner. (laughs) How do those two uh, sequences of the book fit into that larger, like trying to nail his father thing that he's going for? Well, he's explaining himself. I mean, he's, he's explaining the desperation of his condition to live a secret life is a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. As, you know, as we know from, you know, the libera- gay liberation has laid it all out and, you know, in no uncertain terms. I forgot that about the you know, longing for the ideal friend. Yes, he longed for the ideal friend his whole life. <laughs> Um, yeah, as probably most of us do, <laughs> as everybody does, long for the, the ideal friend. The way I see it is, is simply that it just, it increased the sense of who he was. I mean, he gives you a mm. fuller picture of exactly what sort of man he is. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, uh, a wonderful, uh, it, it, I'm going to reread the book. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about that, I had a reading that I wanted to, to uh, discuss sort of around this subject. When we're talking about how his search for the ideal friend in that secret relates to sort of his father's secret life as well. Yeah. Um, so this is when the father is sort of close to death and Ackerley comes to visit him. I found my father recovering, but still bedridden. He asked me at once whether the floods had held me up. I looked perfectly blank. Somehow we got around this for the moment but I saw I had given myself away. I was upset about him, grieved to see him ill, remorseful for having lied to him. A day or two later, when he was better able to talk, I went to him and said, I've got something to tell you, Dad. I've lied to you about Waybridge. I didn't go there at all. He said, I know, old boy. I knew you were lying directly when I asked you about the floods. I said, I went to Turin. Turin, eh? He said, that's right, father. And then, I'm very sorry to have mucked up your plans. This was sickening. I said, I'm very sorry to have lied to you. I wouldn't have done so if you hadn't once said something to me about my waiter friends. But I don't really mind telling you. I went to meet a sailor friend. And then he goes, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) But he interrupted me with, it's all right, my old boy. I prefer not to know. So long as you enjoyed yourself, that is the main thing. (laughs) Thus did he close the door in my face. At that moment, perhaps... Through some guilty need to confess, I would, for better or worse, have told him anything in the world. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And it's both their secret that I wonder if the father ever came close to telling him about his secret as well. But there's a they they never were able to talk about yeah, it in the right. end. The father passed yeah. away too soon. Yeah, that's one of the best parts of the whole book. All those mischances, all the yeah. times mm-hmm. when, and that is so familiar to anybody who wants to speak openly and honestly about something really difficult to somebody else who just keeps closing the door, doesn't give you an opening, doesn't allow you to speak your, your, to say what you have to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that happens to this day. Uh, Mm -hmm. In my life, I've known many, many people who are homosexual, 
who went through exactly this, trying to tell their parents who they are and what they are, and having that closed off immediately. And he does that uh, very well. And that, that's throughout the book, as I remember it. There are many instances like that. That's all right, old boy. As long as you had a good time, I don't want to know any more about it. Right. <laughs> he, he's quite kind. It's not like a father that's like, I don't want to hear about no. it. Like, no. shut up. Right. He's, he's very uh, kind, Jovial. but he's also someone very reserved. Yeah, he's the essence of the Victorian, of a Victorian paterfamilias. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, no opening, and yeah. So the father sort of stands in for that world. Uh, that's the meaning of the secret orchard. That was a euphemism mm-hmm. in Victorian culture for the secret life, sexual secret, sexual life. I couldn't help but notice in The Odd Woman in the City, you used the term ideal friend as well. Oh, did um, I? <laughs> I yeah, yes. in a, like a couple of places. And I was wondering if that was like just a coincidence, like that you read this book and that entered into your mind or if that oh, came yeah, from definitely. somewhere else. Oh, absolutely. I trace it to him. Yeah. Now that you remind me, I forgot myself. <laughs> but yes. That's fantastic. Yeah, that is fantastic. Right. <laughs> so, you know, this was written long ago. I mean, everything in The, mm-hmm. the Odd Woman was written long ago go. What the odd woman is composed out of notes that I took for 30 years on walking the streets of New York and thinking about these things. And yes, the ideal friend. Do I mention Keats also? I can't remember now. Um, but I wish Very likely. The, yeah, as he did, the ideal friend. Yeah, I mean, that's where Ackerley got it. Um, the ideal mm. Oh, okay. So both yeah. of you trace back to Keats. Yeah, I think gotcha. it goes back to I think it goes back to Keats, the ideal friend. But certainly, uh, it was it was Ackerley who put those words into my head. Yeah, <laughs> forgot. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, the ideal friend. I'm still longing for the ideal friend. <laughs> <laughs> to do you consider this book a gay memoir? Because that oh. is how it's frequently labeled. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Again, he uses his gain, his gayness. He uses it metaphorically. Most gay books are, or like like feminist, uh, like uh, or black. Uh, we of the liberationist movements. Most of our books are testimony, rather than achieving metaphor. Most of the, of mm. the books that are written by. You know, women, feminists, gays, uh, blacks, um, we're writing in order to testify, in order to tell the world, this is what it is like to be us. And very rarely does it achieve literature. It must Mm. be metaphorical in order to achieve literature. And very Mm. rarely does does that happen. In other words, well, so Ackerley's book is not about being gay. He's using to talk about the the wonders of the hidden self, of, right. of the self that remains hidden from ourselves as well as from everyone else. It's a great point. Good. So we were uh, wondering why separate the content out into the appendix in the way he does. That is something that's very it's just structurally very interesting. Did you have any idea why he might have chosen oh, to wait, do wait. that? The appendix is that about him running in the in the park with the dog? He talks a little bit about the dog. He goes back to kind of the ideal friend yeah. thing and he some of the details about that he he decides to cut from the main oh. book and put it at the end. 
really? I didn't remember that. So what's in the appendix? Uh, what what exactly? I think it talks about premature ejaculation is like uh, one of the bigger yeah, that was things. The main thing. Yeah, yeah. I think he he a friend of his read it. He says that a friend of his read it and was like you know, that's not really helping your case. Like, maybe take it out. But he's like, look, I spent so much time writing it. I don't want it to go to waste. (laughs) That's an interesting way to approach it. Um, Well, it's defensive. It's very defensive. That's Uh, a good point. He should have left it out. It's wrong. (laughs) It was a mistake. Mm. Yeah. He he kind of did. He he, he He, he compromised. He tried to, yeah. 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 That was an indulgence, right? No, mm-hmm. It was an indulgence. The book would have been better without it, yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that, okay. that's the worst instinct of a writer. I spent so much time on it, I can't give it up. <laughs> yeah. A lot of bad writing comes out of that. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. All right, our, our last point is just sort of a bit of a thesis, which we kind of started with. Uh, we wanted to ask the general question, to what extent are our family stories our own? We thought you'd be the most perfect person to answer uh, that sort of question. To what extent are our, are our family stories our own? Is that what you're asking? Mm-hmm. Meaning yes. we have the right to write about? What do you Partly. Mean? Yeah, or like, how do they define just our life as well? Well, the thing is this. Every writer uh, minds his or her own life. There's mm-hmm. no other life to mine. So it's if you feel strongly that it's your experience, you inevitably give it priority over the thought of hurting the feelings of somebody in the family. There's no way around that. And it can be uh, terrible. You, you know, most uh, writers of novels, uh, more writers of novels are sued by their parents than writers of memoirs. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. they recognize them because writers of novels really feel free to let go, you know, to, to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people recognize themselves and they feel free to sue uh, more, more, than in memoir, more than in memoirs. So, but that question dogs everyone all the time. And there is no answer except when I was writing Fierce Attachments, my mother was alive. And every now and then she'd get really angry at me and she'd say, why are you writing this book? So the whole world will know you hate me. <laughs> and I would get terrified. She would terrify me. And for three days I couldn't write. And, and then I'd go back to it and think, what the hell? This is my experience, not hers. And, mm-hmm. I, and it's, it's what I'm here for. It's what I'm here to be true to. And I would go back to doing what I was doing. And in the end, I felt justified because I felt I was speaking hard truths, but I wasn't out to score. I wasn't out sure. to make her, a, you know, a monster and me a victim. I was, uh, so I trusted the honesty of my own motives. And mm-hmm. that got me through. And everybody does it any which way they can. But the fact is, your family, you, you have to feel strongly about this. I mean, most people t- have said to me, I'm too terrified, you know, for my mother, my father to read this. I couldn't bear it. So, well, you got to bear it. You know, you have to be able to bear it. <laughs> There's no way around it. If it makes you too nervous, forget it. <laughs> Ackerley got to escape that by not starting his book till after his father yeah, had died. Right. So he... And not getting it published until after he died. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Even more, not to publish yes. until after he died, right. 
We were just wondering if there were any other memoirs in this vein that you might want to recommend to our listeners. Oh, in this vein. Well, the, 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 the memoir that has always meant the most to me and that I think is the most perfect memoir is Father and Son by Edmund Goss. Big fan of that one. Yes, yes. That I I, I do believe that is one of the most perfect memoirs. Yeah, and I got a whole whole bunch. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we can we can we can sell it with that one. That's a great one. Yeah. Well, thank you, Vivian, so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. All right, Dylan. Well, we talked to Vivian Gornick. That is one of the most incredible moments of my life. Same. still kind of reeling from that in the best way possible in the best way so what's the final word on my father and myself is it a classic or should it stay buried it's a classic and i think it's a classic for all the reasons that vivian gornick mentioned and i have a greater respect for it now than even i did reading it i really liked reading it but i think yeah. she opened my eyes to a lot of what really makes like when i read it the first time i was like wow this really works for me and now i understand better like why it was working for me and i i really like that more yeah i was like ambivalent about some of the choices like the structural choices Mm -hmm. i just kind of like well what if it was done that way maybe that would be like smoother it's a little Mm -hmm. rough around the edges there's certain inclusions that don't totally gel for me Mm -hmm. but i think what she was saying about the emotional wisdom and his very like fearless answer to the question like who is my father who am i why didn't we care to know each other just Mm -hmm. being I don't know. I don't know because we just didn't freaking care. Like <laughs> that, that, like she was saying, transcending testimony to become metaphor. That's what makes the book brave. Is that the right, is it a corny word to call a book brave? I think she called Ackerley himself not brave, but I think it's very apt to call the writing itself brave. A writer's bravery. Let's yeah. Call. He wasn't a brave man. He was a brave writer. We're graving on a curve. Exactly. We, people are brave in their writing because they're not brave in their life, right? Ooh, that's some Gornick-level wisdom. <laughs> I don't know about that. But um, yeah, I do have a deeper appreciation for it. The heart of the book she got to very quickly. Yeah. Uh, anything else? No. What an incredible experience. Should I read something? You can if you want. I never read. Oh, that's right. You didn't. On this point of the distance that he has towards the subject matter of this book and we haven't read his other books, but it seems, sounds like Vivian has. And so apparently this is just a hallmark of his style. I think the opening of the book for the listeners who don't, who haven't read it and don't have a feel for that, I'm just going to read the first couple sentences. I was born in 1896 and my parents were married in 1919. Nearly a quarter of a century may seem rather procrastinatory for making up one's mind, but I expect that the longer such rites are postponed, the less indispensable they appear, and that, as the years rolled by, my parents gradually forgot the anomaly of their situation. My Aunt Bunny, my mother's younger sister, maintained that they would never have been married at all, and I should still be a bastard like my dead brother if she had not intervened for a second time. Great stuff. (laughs) You find out so much about his life and about his family in those couple of sentences, Mm -hmm. and yet he's not directly telling you those things they're just there and it's tossed off with this sense of humor Mm -hmm. this dry dark sense of humor that yeah just makes the book a little bit chilling and addictive great word Mm -hmm. all right so sorry that was a little out of order but today was a little unusual for us (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Please join us again in two weeks when we discuss In Ermine in Chernobyl by Gregor von Rizori. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love if you rate and reviewed our episode on your favorite podcast platform. And if you could, give us a follow. Bye. See ya. We ask that ourselves. <laughs> That's what Kasia asks herself every day. It's so true. <laughs> Are you from Albuquerque? You? I am. I've, I've never lived anywhere but Albuquerque. Oh, okay. <laughs> I lived in New Mexico for a year. In, uh, you lived? Oh, really? Yeah. In the, in the late 60s, 1968. Really? When everybody was running away. Everyone my age was running away from home. <laughs> um, <laughs> Where'd you live in New Mexico? I lived uh, above Taos, just above. Oh, that's the best mm, okay. place. Yeah. About nice. 30 miles Beautiful. below the Colorado border. Yeah. In the mountains, in those mountains, the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Yeah. That's a great place to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If you're running away from home, it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> it's far enough. Yeah.